Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Bhutam tamam sanghang namasami. So tonight I want to speak about joy. And when I offered, um, well, I, Santa, Santa Chita asked me, um, at first I was hesitant, you know, I normally am. And then later I thought, you know, actually I've been experiencing some joy. Why not share about it? So I had joy at that time. And then later on it was like, oh my gosh, what did I do? <laughs> what did I, you know, the old habits um, of, you know, anxiety come in. But as I sit here and look at you all and feel the support and the, you know, happiness, you don't even know what I'm going to say and you're happy. So I can be happy from that. <laughs> and we can come and bounce off each other and it's great. So actually what, um, another thing that prompted me in this topic is that um, I, I volunteered to um, put together a survey for our Buddhist monastic gathering that we'll have in October. The theme is the joys and challenges of monastic life. And so I thought that, okay, let's, let's do a survey and see what people who plan to come to this gathering feel are, are the challenges that they're experiencing and what are the joys they're experiencing. And so it was very interesting putting together these questions because it was very easy to do it for the challenges. I just whipped out those questions, 25 questions, quickly. And then the joys, well, I had to think a bit more about that. And uh, I was mentioning it to some one of my sisters, and she was saying, half-jokingly, I think, well, my joy is going to bed at night. <laughs> and of course, we can say, oh, you know, I have a joy if I have good food and things like that. But we know that actually what we're wanting is a much deeper joy. And um, just take a moment to uh, see what it feels like when you even hear the word joy. Do we regard it as sort of a, an extra frill? You know, not one of these, not really necessary for the path. It's not the real, you know, nuts and bolts. It's just, you know, a little dessert. It's not the main course. I never thought it was so important. Maybe because I didn't experience too much of it. But, you know, we hear a lot about striving and... And all that's important, but sometimes it can get a little out of balance. And I, I know for myself, I need to connect with something that's going to nourish my heart. And over the past little while, I've connected more with that. And it's brought a lot of joy. And so I feel that it's more than just a dessert. It's something that actually sustains me <clears throat> and that I really need. It nourishes me. So I came into this with a few questions in mind. 
and they are, what significance did the Buddha give to joy? Is joy an important part of the spiritual path? How can we cultivate joy? How can we sustain it in various circumstances? So I went to the discourses of the Buddha and I thought, well, I'll find out what the Buddha has to say about joy. And in the English translations, I read the different words that are used um, in relation to joy and find that there's words like happy, delighted, gladness, rejoice, rapture, bliss, joy, or sympathetic joy. So actually it's made much of. I'll go into these in more detail. And then looking at the Pali words, you know, I, I knew a few of them, like mudita, ananda, piti, nanda or nandi, pomoja, but that's only a few. There's a whole lot of words that are associated with joy. It was amazing. And each of them are presented in a different context. And they have a slightly different quality. And what I became interested in is what gives rise to the different kinds of joy. And what does each one lead to? Just a few days ago, some of us here were involved in a sutta study. And we looked at this honeyball sutta. And it was talking about why people quarrel and why do they take up rods and weapons and how the Buddha doesn't do this. And, and one of the monks says, well, why, why don't you do this? What is it that you do differently? And it was getting into perceptions and mental proliferations that come out of our sensory experience. And one of these phrases stuck out to me, and it, it says, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, to aversion, to views, to doubt, to conceit, the tendency toward being, ignorance, from which come quarrels, brawls, disputes, etc. So it seems here that delight is really the culprit. And yet, there's a, that phrase, if we look a little more carefully, it's, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold to. So it's that last part, the holding to, the attachment to, which is really the culprit. There's a poem that um, Ajahn Sumedho would often quote, William Blake, He who binds to himself a joy doth the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So can we enjoy something? Can we take delight in something without grasping? It's not an easy thing. You know, in theory, yes. But having the ignorance, sometimes we feel that these things are going to give us the kind of happiness that we want. Or at least be a temporary relief from the unhappiness that we don't want. The word that's used there for delight is nanda. And it's also used in the Dhammachaka, Pawatana Sutta, to describe the cause of suffering, the second noble truth. It's in the compound that goes nandiraga sahagata tatra tatra binandani. 
and is translated as bound up with pleasure and lust, ever seeking fresh delight, now here, now there. Very powerful. I know if I'm honest with myself, it's a lot of how I go through life, you know, looking for one thing that's pleasurable after another. I remember in England, you know, having having grown up in Southern California where it's sunny, I like the sun. So there were some days the sun would come out, and I'd just be, ah, oh. and then the cloud would come, and it's like, ugh. And it was like, it was teasing me, taunting me, you know, it was just noticing. Happy, not happy. Happy, not happy. So the Buddha really wasn't ever coming from a place of condemning us for experiencing what we do. He was just pointing things out. You know, if we grasp onto something, it's going to lead to, you know, some separation from that in one way or another. We'll experience some loss because there's change. So it's not that delighting in and of itself is bad. You know, he doesn't even put it in such a dualistic way, this is bad. But more like, what does it feel like when you delight and then something changes? But a lot of it depends on what we're delighting in, because in that same Honeyball Sutta, at the end it says, the bhikkhus delighted in what the Blessed One said. So if we take delight in things that are wholesome, that can be beneficial. I'd like to read a couple verses where the devas are taking delight. It's the Sutta Nipata. One day, <clears throat> during the afternoon siesta, the sage Asita noticed that the thirty gods had all gathered together. Full of joy and overflowing with praises to Indra, they were dressed in the purest white and waved their robes and banners with delight. Seeing all this excitement, Asita respectfully asked the gods what it was they were celebrating. Why are you all so happy and joyful? he asked. What's all this waving and whirling of banners for? I've never seen such excitement as this, not even when the gods won their battle against the Asuras. What can they have seen now? It must be something wonderful for there to be all this rejoicing. They are singing and shouting, playing music, dancing around, clapping and waving. Tell me why, you people from the top of Mount Meru. Please answer my question. Put my mind at rest. In a village called Lumbini, in the Sakyan country, answered the gods, a bodhisattva has been born. A being set on Buddhahood has been born. A superlative being without comparison. A precious pearl of the health and goodness of the human world. That's why they're so glad, so excited, so pleased. So that's a good reason to be excited. So the Buddha wasn't really against happiness. In fact, after he became enlightened, he sat and remained in enjoying the happiness for seven full days. And the Buddha talks about worldly happiness 
in a positive way if that happiness has wholesome roots. So there's a passage in Anguttara Nikaya's The Book of Fours, and the Buddha says there's four kinds of happiness which may be achieved by a layperson. One is the happiness of possession, when those possessions are rightly gained, one's working hard and honestly for them. Number two is the happiness of enjoyment, when one uses what he or she gains in a productive or beneficial way. The third is the happiness of freedom from debt, simply not being in debt, which sounds very simple, but in our day and age, where people are spending with their credit cards money that they don't have, have big mortgages, living beyond their means, they have a lot of anxiety and stress. Once things are paid off, it's, it's happy. And the last is the happy of blamelessness, One lives with wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind. You have no remorse, no fear of recrimination. What will happen if somebody finds out? So these four kinds of happiness are legitimate. You know, it's worth rejoicing in. I liked when we were um, at the retreat with Venerable Nalio, He was talking about the mind states being aware of when there's greed, aversion, delusion. But what I appreciated so much was he would make much of when there's not greed, when there's not hatred, and when there's not delusion. So often we're quick to identify, oh no, I've got this greed or I've got this anger. We become that. They can have an identity that's built around that. But how often do we actually take notice of when the mind is free from wanting, from greed? Like right now, is there any wanting? You can look at this mind and go, wow, fantastic. Is there any aversion? I don't have any ill will towards anyone right now. Is there any delusion? Well, maybe I'm not so sure about that one. (laughs) But... Two out of three is not bad. (laughs) Now, the Buddha, you know, he told it straight. He says, you know, there is a bit of a problem if you totally rely on conditions to give you happiness because external conditions are unreliable because they change. He acknowledged there is gratification in sensual pleasures. It's not that there isn't gratification but there's also the danger. The danger is these things change. Fortunately, there's an escape. He says, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world, that the world is impermanent, bound up with suffering, and subject to change. This is the danger in the world. The removal and abandoning of desire and lust for the world That is the escape from the world. And we're probably all familiar with the eight worldly winds. Again, this has to do with conditions. Winds blow one way and then they blow another way. Sometimes there's happiness and sometimes there's unhappiness. Sometimes there's success and other times failure. Fame, disrepute, or praise and blame. 
So we can notice how much we're wanting one and not wanting the other. And if we get caught in that, we're bound to suffer. It's like at sometimes we're up on the high point and then we crash down. Another thing we may recall from the Satipatthana Sutta when, was that there was a distinction made between feelings. Joy is a pleasant feeling, but there's a distinction made between worldly and unworldly pleasant feelings. Worldly pleasant feelings are these ones that are based on conditions getting things the way we want, getting the approval, or having people like us, being successful. And those kind of things are, are not reliable. The unworldly pleasant feelings, they can also be dependent in the sense that there are things that we can do to help give rise to them. For example, the, the pleasant feelings involved in jhana. But the Buddha said not to be afraid of those, that those are worth cultivating. So these wholesome mental states are actually something we can take delight in, something we can develop and cultivate. So I mentioned Nanda as being a a bit of a problematic word in that it's often associated with the worldly pleasant feelings. But most of the other Pali words that I came across are associated with the unworldly pleasant feelings. So I want to talk about them. We know mudita, like we, we chanted today, is one of the heavenly abidings, one of the Brahma-viharas. This is joy in the goodness of others, joy when other people are happy. It's a, it's a wonderful way. If you don't have your own happiness, you can benefit from other people's happiness. It's like a contact high. When Susan came back from her retreat and was all happy, I was like, wow, great, I got happy. When Marina got that reservation for the campsite, it was great. You know, it was almost as good as watching the dogs on the beach. You know? <laughs> She's like wagging her tail almost. <laughs> and it was wonderful. And even just thinking about you all being there, some of you going on this camping trip, even if I'm not going, it's like, wow, I'm so happy. Just imagine that you're going to have a really nice time in such a beautiful place. So mudita is is a wonderful thing. And it's not that it's always easy. There are times when people are getting attention or approval and we wish we would get it. So instead there can be jealousy or a sense of sadness or self-pity. So it's um, sometimes not as easy, but it's really worth cultivating, noticing it when it's there. There's a verse in the Anguttara Nirakaya in, in the Book of Tens called Act of Will, and it describes a lot of these wholesome states of mind which unfold in a very natural way, one after the other. So this is showing what gives rise to one thing and what it leads to. So it says, For one who is virtuous and endowed with virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May non-remorse arise in me. It is natural, monks, that non-remorse will arise in one who is virtuous. For one free of remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May gladness arise in me. 
it is natural that gladness will arise in one who is free from remorse. For one who is glad at heart, there is no need for an act of will. May deep inner joy, piti, arise in me. It is natural for one glad at heart that joy arises in him. For one who has a deep inner joy, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be tranquil. It is natural for one of joyful mind that his body will be tranquil. For one of tranquil body, there is no need for an act of will. May I feel happiness. It is natural for one who is tranquil that he will feel happiness. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind be concentrated. It is natural for one who is happy that his mind will be concentrated. And it goes on all the way to liberation. Mm-hmm. And I really like this because sometimes we could strive so hard and we don't allow or trust this natural unfolding. And this also shows the important place that joy, gladness, happiness plays. Because when the mind is happy, have you noticed? It's very easy to just be present. It's wonderful. So putting into place one thing leads to another. So how is it that we can cultivate this joy? Well, one, just like this last verse says, we can practice virtue so that we have freedom from remorse. It leads to a general kind of happiness, a relief, and then that leads to a deeper happiness welling up from inside. We can also practice for the allaying of the hindrances, the hindrances are that sensual desire, aversion, doubt, restlessness and worry, and sloth and torpor. These things rob us from joy. But if we can practice with them in a way that allows them to fall away, then it just opens the gate for the enlightenment factors. And the similes that are given for these hindrances when, they're, when we're free of them really show us what joy can be there. So there's simile of being free, having paid off a debt. Just think of how you'd feel. Your debt is paid off. Having recovered from an illness. No longer being in bondage. Having completed a dangerous journey. How wonderful. So joy is just naturally going to be there when this burden isn't being carried, when we're not bound by the other things. Another way to cultivate joy we've already touched upon is focusing on the happiness of others, enjoying vicariously their good fortune. Maybe you've heard the phrase, doing random acts of kindness, (laughs) giving, kind of in just the little ways. Maybe you go out and you see somebody's laundry on the line and you you fold it, and then they're happy, and you get happy because of it. And it takes you out of yourself, you know, maybe obsession with all that's happening with yourself. 
These little things can make a difference. Today we went on alms round and Melissa asked, well, what, what is this all about, this alms round, you know? And besides being a sign of some, the Samana in the world, we're, we're giving people an opportunity to, to give. And in giving, they actually are very joyful. You know, I said, well, you know, it kind of sounds like a bit of a party line to me. But when I've experienced it, I believe it's true. People actually feel happy when they can give. And when I receive, of course, I'm happy too. But that's not the biggest happiness. I, I get more happiness that they're getting something out of it, that they're happy, that they're, something touches their heart in the encounter. And when we say the word anumodana, it actually means I rejoice in your giving rather than thank you because I got something. It's I'm rejoicing in the good quality that you are showing right now. It's a beautiful quality. So it's in delighting in something that's, that's very high. So my heart rises up when I receive, just as your heart rises up when you give. Another way to cultivate joy is mentioned in the Theragata, the verses of the elder monks, which if you read these verses of the elder monks or elder nuns, they're, they're really, a lot of them are rejoicing, exulting, that they're free. And some of them mention that, you know, it wasn't easy for them, but now they've made it. So they're making much of that. And this one verse says, Pervaded with rapture, you'll always be full of joy. This is when you re recollect the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Recollecting the immeasurable Dhamma, confident, pervaded with rapture, you'll always be full of joy. Recollecting the immeasurable Sangha, confident, pervaded with rapture, you'll always be full of joy. Now at first, I really didn't connect with this whole recollecting Buddha Dhamma Sangha thing. But I find the more I, I bring it close into my heart and kind of work with it, translate it in a way that, that makes sense. Because, of course, I didn't know the actual living Buddha. So what does it mean to me, Buddha? It means, well, this, this human being was, was a human being, not a god, and became awake and showed us the way we can also become awake. And if I really reflect on that and this awakening capacity, not only in myself, but in all of us, it's pretty amazing. And it can give rise to a lot of joy. The same with the Dhamma, this truth, the way things are. You know, it's not a matter of just telling somebody. It's really when we bring these things close to our heart. And the Sangha, those who are practicing this way. You know, it's easy to look and see faults of people and think they're, they're not 
really practicing the right way or whatever the critical mind might think. But the, just the fact that there are beings who have awakened and some we've met who are very inspiring, that can bring a lot of joy. Also devotional practices such as mantras. This morning we were reading from the book of Kitisaro and Tanisara. And Kitisaro has a lot of devotion and he's reciting the great compassion mantra every day. And he was saying how much joy that brings him, how it connects him to something very much deeper within himself. He called that the great return. And that's what I find with devotion. It's really not just about an, an external object. It's, it's really about coming home, coming home to a very deep, real place within our own hearts. So however you find works for you, you, know, you might try it out. There's also talk of, in the suttas of the bliss of renunciation and seclusion. Now this is, um, this can seem a bit harsh. Sometimes we hear those words, renunciation and seclusion. And there's different levels of renunciation. It doesn't mean just going away, letting go of everything. But the Buddha does say in the descriptions, especially of jhana, that they always begin with secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, such as the hindrances, and then goes on to describe the jhanas. This is called the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. That last bit, not be feared, we think, why would we fear pleasure? But I had an experience like that that happened to me when I started meditating. My first meditation retreat was a Goenka retreat, and I had not meditated at all before. So not only was the body in excruciating pain for the first, well, gosh, pretty much through the whole thing, but especially <laughs> especially the first four days. And um, I remember just really wanting to give up, but I kind of pushed through. And <clears throat> at one point, I went back to my room on a time when we didn't have to be in the hall. And I just sat with my back against the wall. And in that moment, I had this bliss come up. And there was a sense of no, no, this is wrong. Something's wrong. And I, I moved and I kind of got out of it. Afterwards, I thought, oh, what a <laughs> dummy I was. <laughs> My gosh, I could have sat there and enjoyed that and see where it took me. But there was some suspicion. You know, isn't that funny? A suspicion of something that feels really good, as though, you know, if I'm really practicing, it's got to feel bad, you know? Interesting that. I think I'll come back to that in a little bit. But uh, regarding the renunciation, you know, there's, it's not just giving up all your material possessions. There's renunciation on the part of 
I'm giving up this whole sense of I've got to be in control, I've got to try to manipulate things, or the, ultimately the sense of self. So the external things are just the surface. They can be helpful, make the life simpler. And when the life is simpler, then there's more joy. It reminds me of, of a story of a monk in the time of the Buddha. The other monks noticed he was sitting under a tree and he was going, ah, oh, bliss, ah, oh, bliss, ah, oh, bliss. And they were like, what's up with this guy? And they thought, there's something he's not doing right. And, oh, see, he used to be very wealthy. And they thought, well, he's probably thinking of all those riches and, and you know, just kind of off in fantasy land or something. So they went and they told the Buddha. And the Buddha says, well, have him come over. I'll have a word with him. So the Buddha says to this monk, we heard you're saying, ah, oh, bliss, ah, oh, bliss, ah, oh, bliss. What is that all about? As if the Buddha didn't know. And anyhow, <laughs> he does this to teach us. And the monk says, well, you know, before I was a monk, I was really wealthy. I had a big estate, and I had all these servants working for me. And I was always concerned about, are they doing their job? Is the place protected? Are people going to come in and steal my possessions? And now I don't have to worry about any of that. Oh, bliss. <laughs> Giving up things, we can gain a lot in return. There's a verse in the Dhammapada that says, If by renouncing a lesser happiness, one may realize a greater happiness, let the wise man renounce the lesser, having regard for the greater happiness. And another verse in the Dhammapada says, Happy indeed we live, we who possess nothing, we shall be feeders on joy like the radiant gods. How often our possessions possess us, and we worry about them. And, and this is not an absolute statement, you know, oh yeah, tomorrow go get rid of everything, throw it away. We use it. But how much are we really attached to it? I think that's what it's pointing to. And the same thing with the bliss of seclusion. You know, we can run off to the forest and be on our own, and sometimes that can come from a place of aversion. I don't want to deal with these other people, this noise, this all this commotion. And that's not what it's about. Sure, it is helpful to have time and space on one's own. I love it. But there's levels of seclusion, and the external level, as helpful as it can be, isn't the ultimate level. The next level is about seclusion from unwholesome <coughs> mental states, citta viveka, which is being able to be amongst situations and with people and, and not have the mind go out with greed or aversion toward what you hear, see, or otherwise experience what you think about these things. So that's a lot harder to do. But when we can do that, notice there's a lot of joy. Oh, I don't have to jump on and out. I don't have to get involved and you know, maybe always state my view and my opinion about everything. Maybe I can just allow people to have their way sometimes. You know, it's going to be joyful. 
even in very challenging situations, things that are difficult, it's possible to find bliss. One of my favorite suttas is one that most monks and nuns will know of because it's called the Papaja Sutta, about the going forth from home to homelessness. And this is where the Buddha is talking about what motivated him to go forth. And he's talking about renunciation and what caused him. And uh, he wanted to, to go out and live in the open air because he felt like household life was dusty and crowded. But what stands out so much to me is the very last verse. He says, I have seen the miseries of pleasure. Now this is coming from a prince, you know, had everything, all the five chords of sensual pleasure, everything that could possibly make one happy, what most people strive for in life. He says, I've seen the miseries of pleasure. I have seen the security involved in renouncing them. That's so opposite of what most people think. And then this last part. So now I will go. I will go into the struggle. This is to my mind delight. This is where my mind finds bliss. Wow. So the Buddha knew it's not going to be easy to give up that life and to sometimes be out in the open and cold and maybe sometimes not get food. You know, I'm not saying that all the monks and nuns live that way now, but certainly there's going to be struggles, and not just in monastic life, in all of life. So this is something we can all relate to. But how can we possibly find bliss in the midst of it? So it's not just about running away from it. Buddha, when he was, before he became the Buddha, Siddhartha, as a young boy, once went with his father to a plowing ceremony because his father is a, you know, the head of this clan and, you know, he had to be at this big ceremony. And so while his father's conducting the ceremony, Siddhartha's sitting under the rose apple tree. I don't think at that time he was really thinking, I'm, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to get enlightened. And yet, his mind became very peaceful. And he entered into a very joyful state, a very easeful place. And when he talks about this, is during the time when he's an adult. After he left the palace... And he's striving very, very hard for enlightenment. So he's given up everything. He's done all these austerities. He's learned from the masters who have taught him all the jhanas. And he's gone through to the highest stages. And yet he's realizing, wait, I'm not really getting where I want to be. And he remembers this time when he was a young boy when he was sitting under this tree. And he thinks, wow, there was something to that. What if I just relax a bit? Maybe even I should eat something, because he had, by that time, limited his intake of food to maybe one grain of rice. You know, they say he could touch his backbone by pushing through his front side. 
I mean, he was ready to fall over. And there was this young lady named Sujata who came by with milk rice and offered it to the Buddha. And he took some. And of course, the other ascetics who were with him thought, oh my gosh, he's lost it. We don't want to hang out with him anymore. But the Buddha thought, well, actually, I can't continue to practice if I'm going to die because of starvation. And it was that time under the rose apple tree that, that made the difference. He remembered that. And he remembered that he was very relaxed. And he thought, well, maybe this is the way to enlightenment. I'd like to read a bit from a book called Going on Being by Mark Epstein. And this is from his chapter called The Platform of Joy. So he's talking about the Buddha at this time when he's under that rose apple tree. And suddenly it came flooding back to him. Might that be the way to enlightenment? The incredulous Buddha thought to himself. Then, following up that memory, there came the recognition that this was the way to enlightenment. In recognizing that it was indeed the way, he continued his investigation. What happened next is, for me, the most crucial. The Buddha noticed that there was something scary about this pleasure that appeared out of nowhere. And he said, why am I afraid of such pleasure? He wondered. Why should this be scary? Why should a pleasure that jumps out of nowhere, not dependent on sensual desires, be frightening? Perhaps because it challenges our identity as someone who is lost, hungry, cut off, deprived, bereft, searching, or in need of an object. It challenges our assumption about the direction of relief. The pleasure feels too great, too undeserved, too blinding, Yet this, as the Buddha intuited, is the direction of enlightenment. The Buddha, after a moment's reflection, saw through his fear a pleasure that did not depend on the gratification of desire was a pleasure inherent to what is. If happiness was inherent to what is, then why push reality away? The Buddha discovered that relaxing into his own being permitted him to relate to the world with an openness and acceptance that had been missing. It meant building upon a capacity for joyful experience that was inherent to who he already was. I really like that. Because it brings us right back into the intimacy of our own being. This is what Kittisara was talking about with the great return. It's here, coming back here, discovering what's already here. It's like so often we identify with being like a wave in the ocean and we don't realize we are already part of the great ocean. Can we rest in that? Can we be content? Or are we always striving for something in the future, having this sense of wanting to become better? I think that's so deeply ingrained. 
least for myself, conditioning. As a child, as growing up in a society, many of us have started with a Christian background where, you know, we're, we already start with a deficit rather than abundance, a sense that we've got to make up for something. And in the Mahayana tradition, in Vajrayana, they make much more of the Buddha nature, that which is already intrinsically a part of our being. And yet in early Buddhism, it's, it's not as pronounced. I wouldn't say there's, there's nothing there. It does talk about the radiant heart, the heart that's pure, chittam, pabasaram, the unconditioned. And yet, we're not to have any kind of identity around this. And sure, there is no one there, and yet, by default, how often we do tend to identify with the, the sense of lack or the sense of deficit. And if we are starting from a place like that, how could we possibly experience joy? So, to me, the biggest, the, the deepest joy is this unqualified joy that's part of what we are when we're not being something else, when we're not becoming, when we're not identified with doing. There still can be action, but where we're not so much the doer, because that leads often to anxiety. You know, am I going to do it right? Am I going to finish it? So it's not about grasping after pleasant experiences and it's not about pushing them away. But it's about this reorientation. The Buddha was able to make use of the spontaneous being in the moment of his childhood, which was not in itself the same as enlightenment, but which was the key to its attainment. So I wonder if we can remember any time when we were a child where there was this ease of being. Maybe it was a sense of awe or mystery. Maybe it was when we're out in nature or there's sort of an, an innocence of just being. Do you remember a time like that where you were happy? Maybe like the Buddha, we can bring ourselves back and then cultivate the path, having that in mind. Mark Epstein says, The path to enlightenment requires us to recover the capacity for joy, not by imitating the Buddha's process, but by initiating our own. As the Buddha found in his recovery of his childhood experience, discomfort with innate joy is understandable. Its recovery challenges basic assumptions about the origin of happiness. We are trained to assume that sensual gratification or its absence is the defining element of our pleasure. The Buddha found otherwise. <clears throat> this is what's so revolutionary about his approach. So I hope that this exploration has been useful to
to point to the value of having happiness and joy, to cultivating that, to find what nourishes us, and not to be afraid of that or think that we have to just push, push, push too hard. Maybe we're afraid sometimes if we don't push, we will be taken over by laziness and fall back. But that's just a thought in the mind. It's a fabrication. Maybe if we did like the Buddha and just relaxed and found the deep wellspring within us where we can connect to the joy of being. Anyhow, it's a new discovery for me, so I'm what I'm trying to do more of. And I thank you all for your kind support and presence. Uh, and this is what I have to offer. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.